0: Father, we are thankful as always for the chance to study your word. We worship, Father, in spirit and in truth. And, Father, the opening of your word, the study of what you've placed there before us, that is worship in truth. Because we do worship it, Father. We worship it because it is you, for you, Father, through your Son, are the word. You lived it out through your Son. And now, Father, we desire to do the same by the power of the Holy Spirit. So we ask, Father, that as we study your word, your spirit would be speaking and not I, that we would learn, Father, according to your purpose, and that most importantly, Father, we pray that what we do learn would have its good work in each of us, that we may live it out. I thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, we left off in Luke chapter 3, so please, if you have your Bible, go there with me now. We're going to begin again in verse 21. And as a point of reminder, since we left off in the middle of this chapter, last week we came into the chapter as we see John the Baptist having matured to a man coming out of the wilderness to begin his ministry. And our purpose in watching him work, as we may remember from last week, was in seeing a picture of the Holy Spirit through John. That in his ministry, coming to prepare a way for Christ to make crooked paths into straight paths, to fill in caverns, to uh, ensure that there is a people prepared for the Lord. All of that work was the work John the Baptist did in the day Christ came, but more importantly, it is the work of the Holy Spirit in every day, in the hearts of men and women that God is calling into faith and pointing them to His Son for their sake, for the sake of salvation. That is the role of the Holy Spirit today, that is the role John played in his day, and and in, in that way, he pictures the Holy Spirit. Now, obviously, in his day, the Holy Spirit was also at work. But in the way that John the Baptist played out a life of ministry, it was made evident that the Holy Spirit's role is to bring men first and foremost to repentance and that having repented of a life apart from God, they are now open to the truth. They are now looking for what will come next. And that is when the Holy Spirit points them to Christ. And in his ministry, he glorifies the Son, who then in turn glorifies the Father. We studied that last week. Now, if, if you would ask the question of somebody, particularly, let's say, a Christian, why did Jesus come to earth as a man? Well, that question could be answered in multiple ways. If, for example, a simple Christian perspective would be, he came to die for my sin. Obviously, that's true. You might add to that that he came to live a sinless life, so that when he died for sin, he was not paying for his own sin, but was available then as a substitutionary atonement for your sin and my sin. Those might be the answers somebody would give in a very simple way maybe when you ask that question. But a more astute Bible student is going to have additional answers perhaps. For example, they might offer that he came to give the kingdom of God to the Israeli nation, the Jewish nation, though they rejected it. He came to offer the kingdom of God to them. Uh, Another answer is he came to fulfill all prophecy with respect to his coming. Uh, as the Son of God, He came to reveal the Father. Just like in John fourteen nine, when Christ says, If you have seen Me, you have seen the Father. He came to reveal the Father. Finally, you could also answer, He gave an example to believers on how to live. That His life stood as a testimony of what it was to live a righteous life. Well, in the first verses that we're going to look at today, the first two verses that we're going to read, 21 and 22, we're going to see at least the last three of those reasons I just gave on display. In other words, we're going to be able to study at least three reasons why Christ came to earth. But we're also going to have a better opportunity to understand the purpose of both baptism and the purpose of prayer as reflected in, this, in these two verses. So we'll move through more than just two, but I want to look at these two for a little while because of all that they contain. Luke 3.21 Now, when all the people were baptized, Jesus was also baptized. And while he was praying, heaven was opened. And the Holy Spirit descended upon him in bodily form like a dove. And a voice came out of heaven You are my beloved Son, in you I am well pleased. Luke gives probably the shortest account of this from all of the Gospels. And if we were to go look at some of the other Gospels on this same event, the parallel accounts, we would also be able to learn some additional things. For example, we would know that John the Baptist has been pretty busy baptizing people. He has a crowd, in fact around him in the Jordan, where he's been baptizing now for some time. We said last week that his ministry was calling people out to a life of repentance. And apparently there was already work by the Holy Spirit in that community to draw men to John and to give them an awareness of the need for repentance. So, though we hear of Jesus coming and being baptized, it was a fairly busy scene as he arrived. John was busy in the water, probably as he is most days, and he caught sight of Jesus coming from a distance. We hear that from the other Gospels. And as he approaches, we know from the account given in John particularly that John the Baptist did not know who Jesus was. And I mean that on two levels. We know that John's mother and Jesus' mother were related in some way. So you might have assumed that as boys growing up, they would have known each other. The account given in John though would tell us otherwise. It's more the case, like we said last week, that John the Baptist probably spent most of his life going all the way back to perhaps very early years, separated from the world, separated in the wilderness, probably living by himself, more or less. And how early that started, we said last week, is unclear, but it is probably the case that he never had a chance to meet Jesus while he was growing up. Add to that the fact that Jesus grew up in Nazareth while John the Baptist was living in Bethlehem because that's where his mother was when when Mary went to go visit her oh, not Bethlehem, I'm sorry, went down to visit her, not Bethlehem, but in the town outside of Jerusalem, about uh, the suburbs, if you will, the hills outside of Jerusalem. So they were not located near each other when they grew up, and then John as well went into the wilderness. And beyond even the fact of them not knowing each other personally, it's also clear from the Gospel account in John that John the Baptist knew who he was waiting for, the Messiah, but he had no idea who the Messiah would be. And as Jesus approaches on this day, John does not know he's looking at the Messiah. Not at first, according to the Gospel of John. And then it says that John realized who Jesus really was only after he saw the descending of the Dove, the descending of the Holy Spirit upon Jesus. He knew that meant this was the Messiah. Because according to John, and according to John's testimony in the Gospel of John, that's the sign he had been given. John the Baptist had been told, the one on whom I place my spirit will be the one who I intend to send to the nations. Luke is telling us here that Jesus came to John and then John turned around and baptized him. Again, very little detail. Following the baptism, Luke records that the Holy Spirit descends on Jesus, just as the Gospel of John said would happen. And in Luke's specific vision, though, he gives a little bit more detail than the others on this one aspect, on the descending of the Holy Spirit. He says that it comes in the form of a dove, which we now know is a symbol of the Holy Spirit. People put doves out now as a symbol of the Holy Spirit, in part because of this image that Luke records. Now, this is, technically this is called a theophany. Theophany is a fancy word for God in spirit taking the, uh, giving the image rather of something concrete, of something real. This is different than Christ taking on human form. Christ was not a theophany, he was not a vision, he was in fact human, he had a real human body. But when you see the Holy Spirit coming down in the form of the dove, the Holy Spirit is all spirit and it never takes physical form. What it does do on occasion however is present itself in an image as something physical, in other words your eyes see a dove, but in reality there is no dove there. In reality the Holy Spirit is all spirit, it is a vision. So in displaying himself in this way, he's trying to communicate something. And that's part of what we want to ask today. This theophany as God appears in corporeal form, taking on a form of his creation. What's its purpose? Why is the Holy Spirit being so demonstrative about why he's there and who he's there for? And in fact, it's maybe even a more fundamental question that will actually lead us to the answer for this other question. The more fundamental question is, we know Christ was sinless. The scriptures tell us that plainly. Why did he have to be baptized? Why is Christ getting baptized? Maybe that's the right question for the day. And within that question, we have answers to some of these other ones as well. Now, maybe we ought to set straight for at least the purpose of this discussion what baptism is for, and then let's look at how it applies to Christ. Baptizing was done to disciple a believer, not to create a believer. And hopefully that's already something we've understand. Baptism is a discipling effort toward believers, not the means by which we create a believer. In fact, it is symbolic. Now, we've talked in here in the past about how you get baptized because you're a believer, not to become a believer. And it makes sense at least on one simple level. The act of getting into the water itself requires faith. The act of concluding this is something I want to do requires an appreciation of the things of God and a desire to serve and obey God, which those things themselves require the working of the Holy Spirit in the heart of a man or woman. So though I can pretend to get into the water, if I have true intentions as I step in, I'm already revealing a faith that desires to please God, that desires to obey Him. So it is the act of a believer, not the creating of a believer, Scripture is clear on that. So if it is not literally creating salvation, but rather reflects salvation, what's its purpose then? Why do it? What's its value? Well, as I said, it's symbolic. At the very simplest sense, it depicts what's already taken place. It depicts a cleansing of sin. Second Peter talks about how water, or 1 Peter, I believe, talks about how the water washes away sin. Not literally, Peter reminds us, but figuratively. It is a picture of how The Holy Spirit has cleansed us of our sin by faith. Secondly, Paul says it also depicts the dying of the old self, the dying of the man we were, the woman we were, the sinful man or woman that we were, and then again, the rising up, the resurrection into new life, into a new man that we have now become by the power of the Holy Spirit. So it's a cleansing, it's also a rebirth process being depicted in that. That would be one reason, for example, why I would advocate that baptism should be by immersion. Not because it doesn't take if it's not that way, not because it's not official, not because in any sense it's somehow inappropriate, but merely because some of the symbolism, some of the meaning is not communicated as effectively by virtue of a baptism that does not include immersion. Such So much so that if somebody had not been baptized through immersion and was a believer, felt, felt a genuine belief and faith in Christ my recommendation, my encouragement to them would be to seek immersion baptism. Why not take opportunity, if you can, to give the full measure of, of the message to those who would watch? It can never hurt. But it does not. your salvation does not depend on it. That goes without saying. In both cases, though, whether it's cleansing of sin, whether it's this resurrection into new life, this is a picture of something that's already been done in the heart by the Holy Spirit. Now, the Holy Spirit within the Godhead, within the Trinity, is the one with the ministry to bring this new life, to bring men to this new life. He is the one who gives the new spirit within the believer. He is the one who brings an awareness of the forgiveness of sins. Remember, we begin by an awareness of our sin. That's the repentance piece of salvation. I must, I must be aware I need something before I accept it. I must be aware of a problem before I look for the solution. Until I'm willing to grant you that I have a problem, until I'm willing to agree that my life somehow is wrong, I will have no interest in what the solution is, even if you present it to me. So the first work of the Holy Spirit in the heart of any man or woman is the repentance step. That's how John the Baptist was in his own day, mimicking or emulating or symbolizing that process for the Holy Spirit. But if I give repentance without also giving the truth of the gospel message, You may consider it something like the the story Christ told about a man who is swept clean of demons, but having nothing come in its place, he is now available for more demons to come in and set up home again in that place that was swept clean. The sweeping clean must be followed by the implanting of the seed, the Word of God, so that there may be new life. The Holy Spirit is the one who then, having convicted of sin and brought repentance, is also the one who now, indwelling indwelling the believer, will be there perpetually to remind you that you've been forgiven. This is a major issue, I think, in the lives of many Christians. Many Christians spend a lot of their life aware of the fact that they've been saved and aware of it by the fact of faith. They're they're not confused about salvation, but yet they feel guilty. And I don't mean conviction of sin rightly so. I mean guilty in the sense that they still feel like they have to make up for something. They still have to work at something. They still have to please God Or in some sense, all of what's happened is in jeopardy. That's fundamentally untrue out of Scripture. And one of the works of the Holy Spirit in the life of a believer is to give them the confidence that their sins are forgiven. To give them the hope that they will have eternal life. To remind them, you have nothing to fear, and particularly in the case of death, as Hebrews tells us, there is no fear of death for the believer. Those are the ministering effects of the Holy Spirit in the life of a believer, while at the same time continuing to convict of sin and bring about sanctification. He is also the one who brings about the awareness of the Word of God and its importance to us. You've heard of people having a hunger for the Word of God. I would argue that's probably why many of you sit in this room, despite all the reasons why you might not. You're here because of a hunger for the Word of God. You credit the Holy Spirit in you for that hunger. If you can't explain to somebody why reading this book on a regular basis is so important to you, then my guess is you may be talking to someone who does not share the same Holy Spirit. Because in my experience, one of the fundamental characteristics of new birth in Christ is a desire for this that's unexplainable to varying degrees. But if you have a desire to know the Word of God, you're feeling the ministry of the Holy Spirit in you. And finally, He is the one by indwelling us who empowers us into ministry who calls us out of a place of of complacency and out of a life of selfish serving of one's own desires and moves you to a place where you have a desire to serve others in a gifting, to do something back for the body of Christ, to building the kingdom. Those are all ministries of the Holy Spirit. We use water in the baptism process to picture things like the cleansing and the birth of a new man. We use oil in a whole different process in the anointing ministry to signify how the Holy Spirit might come upon a man and prepare him for ministry and charge him with something and call him to something and equip him to something. The oil then is a picture of the Holy Spirit in that moment. But no less is it a picture there than it is a picture in baptism, but it's an important one. Now we know all these things from Scripture, and I've sort of summarized this picture of the Holy Spirit for you because there are some details now in this story that may surprise you when you consider what the role of the Holy Spirit is For the baptism of Jesus. Because that's still the question here. Did Jesus need any of the things I just described with respect to the symbols of baptism? We know he didn't need the cleansing of sin, for example. We know he didn't need to picture some resurrection into new life. None of those things were appropriate for him. Why then is there a baptism going on? What things are appropriate for Christ? Well... Consider that in John's day, John the Baptist, baptism was a brand new thing. If you were to go back and study in the Old Testament, there is no equivalent picture out of the Old Testament for baptism. The closest we have out of the New Testament is the nation of Israel walking through the Red Sea. That in walking through the Red Sea, some have approached that and said that is an equivalent kind of baptism for that people coming through the water in a sense. And perhaps so, but... Apart from that, there's really no clear picture. There's no ceremonial process given out of the law, for example, or ever practiced according to the Old Testament that would approximate baptism. It was a new idea. So in John's day, as he brings this to the people from the wilderness and says, if you recognize your sins, you need to be repentant, you need to be baptized into the repentance of John the Baptist. That's why his name is John the Baptist, because what he brought was so novel and different and new. But what do you think it meant to the men and women in that day? And to John the Baptist specifically? What were they assuming they were accomplishing when they went down to the water? For John and for all those who had been exposed to this new ministry, there was really only one picture being given through that event. And that was simply the washing away of sin. They had no appreciation in that moment of a new birth by the power of the Holy Spirit in faith of a Messiah. They were looking forward to their Messiah, yes, but... Those details were not yet clear. There hadn't been any instruction from God on what baptism meant, apart from cleansing of sin, apart from repentance. This would explain, for example, John the Baptist's reaction to Christ when Christ came down to the water and said, you're to baptize me. Luke doesn't give us that, but Matthew does. In Matthew 3.14, here's what we see happening. John tried to prevent Christ. My version says John tried to prevent him, but him here refers to Christ saying, I have need to be baptized by you, and do you come to me? That was how John the Baptist reacted. And Christ said this, Jesus answering him said to him, Permit it at this time, for in this way it is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. And then he permitted him. So John the Baptist, seeing baptism solely as a picture of the cleansing of sin, which it is in part, looked at Christ coming down to the water to be baptized, recognizing to some extent who this person was and said, wait a minute, something's wrong here. (laughs) You're asking me to baptize you as if you are being cleansed of sin and yet you are without sin. If anything, you should be baptizing me, he says. And we would have had the same reaction, right? That would have been the natural thought. But it's only the right thought if your perspective of what baptism is about is centered exclusively on this issue of washing away of sin. Until you broaden your view of what we're accomplishing in baptism, you're likely to think there's no reason why Christ should be baptized. Well, we know that John was reluctant to baptize Christ on the basis that he did not have sin. But what John didn't appreciate was what Christ was there for. And I think that's what we want to make sure we understand. In fact, I also want you to notice, John probably, I'll show you why in a minute, probably assumed that Jesus' own ministry would include baptizing people. But it never did. I want you to notice this. It's likely that John assumed that what he was doing, he was doing as a forerunner of Christ. Which is true, but probably not in the sense John assumed it was true. John assumed that he came in baptizing people in water for the purpose of repentance. But following him would be one who is greater, who would come to baptize people with the Holy Spirit. And therefore, Jesus would have a ministry of baptizing while he, when when he comes into his own. Look what happens in John 4, chapter 4, verse 1. Therefore, when the Lord knew that the Pharisees had heard that Jesus was making and baptizing more disciples than John, although Jesus himself was not baptizing, but his disciples were, and then it goes on to talk about the Pharisees. I bring in that little clip because I want you to understand that even John and his gospel made a pointed effort to, to tell you that Jesus' ministry did not include his personal baptizing of people. There is no record in the Gospels of Jesus ever personally baptizing anyone. In fact, the statement on the record is he never did. John 4, 1. Okay? What am I making a big deal out of this for? Because John mentioned pointedly in his Gospel that Christ wasn't baptizing because it was not the ministry of Jesus to baptize. Who has the ministry of baptism in the Trinity? We've already established that. It's the Holy Spirit. Jesus is going to do a certain aspect of ministry, you bet, but that's not one of them. One of the pieces of Christ's reason for coming was not to baptize. That responsibility within the Godhead rests on the Holy Spirit. And so John's assumption that the primary focus of Jesus' ministry was to bring repentance, thereby the forgiveness of sins, and then ultimately to bring him to baptism, no, that's not Christ's ministry. You have to understand that in the Godhead, the the ministry of the Holy Spirit is to point you to Christ, but the ministry of Christ is to point you to the Father, to pay, your price, to pay your penalty of sin so that you may have fellowship again with the Father, ultimately glorifying him for the work he does through his Son on our behalf. So John the Baptist here pictures the ministry of the Holy Spirit, and Jesus' ministry stands apart from that. So it wasn't as though John the Baptist came as a forerunner to Christ in the sense that Christ would do what John did, only greater. No. No. He comes as a forerunner in the same way that the Holy Spirit comes as a forerunner of Jesus in our own lives. So nothing that John did per se is what Christ himself will do, but rather everything John did was in preparation so that Christ could do what he would do, which is die on the cross and save us by faith. In John's Gospel, John the Baptist says he didn't know, as I mentioned, that Christ was the Savior of the world, or that it was, in fact, Jesus who would be the Messiah, until he saw the descending of the dove. And that descending of the dove is a picture of the Holy Spirit anointing Christ's ministry. Preparing and anointing His ministry. So, if forgiveness of sins is not the purpose behind Jesus' own baptism, what is? And that's where we're going now. That's that's why I said the anointing. But let's break this down even a little further. To better understand this, you only have to understand a couple things. Number one, all three parts of the Godhead are in this scene. You have Father speaking, Holy Spirit descending, Jesus obviously there in the moment. But we've already heard how this Spirit descended in a very visible way as a dove. And by the way, why would he come in such a peculiar way? Why not just a light? Why something so specifically visible? In fact, if this was Texas at the wrong time of year, descending like a dove is exactly the wrong thing to do. I'm not sure you'd last very long. Consider the words of John that I referred to earlier concerning the same scene, beginning in John 1.33. John the Baptist says, I did not recognize him, but he who sent me to baptize in water said to me, He upon whom you see the Spirit descending and remaining upon him, this is the one who baptizes in the Holy Spirit. John 1.34. I myself have seen and have testified that this is the Son of God. Father, glorify your name. Then a voice came out of heaven. I have both glorified it and will glorify it again. So the crowd of people who stood by and heard it were saying that it had that it had thundered. And others were saying, an angel has spoken to him. Jesus answered and said, this voice has not come for my sake, but for your sakes. The words of Jesus tell us that this entire scene, including the Holy Spirit descending and all these voices playing out from heaven, all of this scene now came for the sake of those who were watching. And that's the answer here. The fact that the Holy Spirit was made so visible to the point of actually giving an image of a dove, is so that the meaning of these events in this scene would be known to those who observed and could be shared through the gospel. It was a testimony to who Jesus was. Some regarded, for example, Jesus as a religious teacher or a prophet. Some still do today. A really smart guy with a lot of good things to say. But all of those thoughts of Christ pale in comparison to the portrait given here in Luke and in John, as we just read. Jesus came to be baptized And he did so in such a visible way so that his identity could be established before the crowd as the Son of God and nothing less. And that ministry of showing himself to be the Son of God before all these people, before John the Baptist itself, was so that no one could stand at any point after this and say, he's nothing more than a good teacher. He proposes to to you that he is the Son of God. It's interesting. Remember we talked about John having all these people gathered Preparing a people for Christ. Well, here they are now. This audience that was prepared by John the Baptist ministry is there to witness something God needed witness so that the word would spread. All of this preparing hasn't been done. Now, when we're baptized, we're doing exactly the same thing. Here's where the parallels become so fascinating. When we're baptized, the baptism of a believer is often a hotly debated piece of theology in different churches. You know, immersion, sprinkling, infant baptism, adult baptism... But you can deal with all of these issues if you go back to the purposes for the event and show how they were paralleled in the very baptism of Christ himself. And though baptism, we've said, is not a part of the salvation process, it is important. Otherwise, Christ would never have demanded that it happen. So, let's talk about this clearly. First of all, it is not a requirement for salvation. The thief on the cross forever stands as testimony that you don't have to be baptized to be saved. Point blank. But as we learn it is not essential for salvation, we can also make a mistake of going to the other extreme and assuming that it's meaningless and optional. All right, it's just as wrong for you to assume that baptism is meaningless as it is wrong to assume it's essential for salvation. Remember in Mark 16:16, 16, 16, Christ said this, He who has believed and has been baptized shall be saved, but he who has disbelieved shall be condemned. Now, Jesus said that believing and being baptized are so intimately connected that you should not go with one and not the other. But when he talks about condemning someone, do you notice he only condemns for disbelief? In other words, he doesn't say, and those who have disbelieved or not been baptized will be condemned. He doesn't say that. In other words, faith coming as it does, baptism is an important part of making a believer, but it is not a part of being saved. Its purpose is different than that. It is to disciple. To confirm a changed heart, particularly in the case of a believer. And it can prove to both the person himself as well as to those who are observing that this change is genuine. Now, that's not a minor issue, by the way. I don't think we often put enough importance on the fact that many Christians take years to fully appreciate that they are, in fact, Christian. And some of that comes from the fact that they've never actually taken that public step of a baptism, or even, for that matter, of a public confession. Romans 10.8 says this. What does the word say? The word is near you in your mouth and in your heart. That is the word of faith which we are preaching. That if you confess with your mouth Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that he raised him from the dead, you will be saved. And in Romans 10.10, For with the heart a person believes, resulting in righteousness, and with the mouth he confesses, resulting in salvation. It declares our identity to confess that you believe. Um, I think it's interesting how many Christians have never made a public confession. Some churches are very good about that. They bring you down and they make you do an altar call. That can have its own problems. But at least they imply or impress upon you the need to make a public confession. followed quickly by a baptism if they can possibly arrange it. Because they believe in that public confession. I'll point out that for many of us that have not done this, that there is a penalty to apply in our lives. I, my own story is a good example. I was grow, grew up in a church that was, uh, in my case, the Catholic church, which I had no interest in. It did not produce faith in me. It was simply an exercise in going to church. I left home. As you know, I get away from that as soon as I can, and I'm an adult with no faith. Then God begins to work in my heart and brings me an awareness of himself and of the Word of God, and I believe. And I believe in a moment somewhere along the way, but I can't tell you when that moment was. But I knew somewhat after the case that something had changed. But then time went by. I never did anything more than simply know that in my heart something was different. I had never confessed with my mouth. Now, was I unsaved? No. The problem was, I wasn't even fully confident in my own salvation because I hadn't ever had that moment of decision where I had to actually vocalize it. What I'm getting at is, I'm sitting there in this sort of in-between state. Not in-between salvation and not, don't get me wrong. But in-between in the way I'm living it out. In many respects, my life still looks like an unbeliever, though my heart's changed. What's not there is the recognition up here that I am, in fact, different. And sometimes you have to make that public statement in order for yourself to appreciate it. And God has a way of arranging those opportunities. Not long after I believe I came to faith, I was in my house and somebody came to the door one day, knocked. I opened the door. Gentlemen's there and with a friend. And you can tell there's some others across the street. They're going up and down the street doing door-to-door witnessing. Not Jehovah's Witness, not Mormons, regular Christians. True Christians. And the guy says, Hello, my name is so-and-so, and and I'm from such-and-such church, and I just wanted to know, if you were to die today, where would you go? Well, howdy to you too. And immediately I knew what to say, and I felt a real strong conviction in the moment. I needed to say something. You know, sometimes you say, Oh, I'm a Christian, don't worry. You, You know, you sort of play it off. No, I felt the need to respond. And I gave essentially a mini testimony. And the guy said, Well, praise the Lord, brother, have a good day, and walked away. And I remember distinctly closing the door and as I'm turning to go I had an immediate thought coming to my mind that was my profession of faith. That in a moment God gave me the opportunity to do what I should have done anyway long beforehand. Not to the crowd not in a moment I had a profession of faith that was enough that in my heart I thought you know you are different you are a Christian you wouldn't have done that a year ago or two years ago whenever. Later the same thing occurred with baptism I had never thought to be baptized anybody talked to me about being baptized while I was I was a Catholic. I'd been baptized as an infant. I was done. Didn't need to mess with that anymore. Why would I need to be baptized again? And then my daughter became a believer at age seven and heard that there was going to be a baptism. And she said, oh yeah, Daddy, I want to be baptized too. And my wife said, you've never been baptized since you've become a believer, have you? You But she was right. And I'm thinking to myself, yeah, that's probably a good point. Maybe I should do this. And about that time, the preacher happened to be talking about baptism, so it was a timely thing. They set up one and I got baptized with my daughter at the same time. Wonderful experience. But God has a way of drawing you into what you should be doing, even if you're reluctant to do it, out of disobedience. And I have similar stories on other areas, but that's, that's typically the way God will work. And so Christ, as I've pointed out, declared his identity through his baptism, but that itself was not the only reason. From both Luke and John's description, we also see him receiving the Holy Spirit, as I've mentioned. And in that moment, the Spirit descended. The Father, as I said, anointed Jesus for his ministry on earth. A ministry that would require the power of God himself. Here's the second surprising thing you may not have realized about Jesus' ministry. The first is he did not come to baptize. That's the role of the Holy Spirit, prompting in someone a desire to respond in faith. That was not the purpose in Christ's ministry. Similarly, Christ required the power of the Holy Spirit in order for him to do his ministry. Now, it's helpful for us as we move into this area, and we're going to do this throughout the book of Luke, to understand what it truly meant for God to take the form of man. Because that's what's at issue here. Jesus was not a theophany. He was not God walking around in a man's suit. He was man, as much as you are, but for no sin. But for no sin. But in every other respect, constrained as you and I are constrained by our bodies. Constrained to be in one place at one time. Constrained by a mind and senses that can't know what's going on in somebody else's mind or heart apart from supernatural power. And Christ, we're told in Scripture, limited Himself by choice voluntarily into the form of man so that He could do what the Father needed Him to do. We often gloss over what that means. It means He gave up His power as God, though He never gave up His person as God. He was not... He was no less God but for the fact that he gave up the capability he had when he previously sat on the right hand of the Father from the beginning of time. Do you understand the difference I'm, I'm, I'm pointing out here? If, I have a, if, if I'm a doctor and I have a bag of all my doctor tools and I have my hospital with all my doctor equipment and I decide to give all my tools away and to give up my ID badge so that I'm no longer welcome in the hospital for a time, I'm no less a doctor. But now I'm unable to function as I used to because I have given up the power effectively, the power of my capabilities to some extent, and I've done so voluntarily. That is the closest I can try to give you for what happened when Christ gave up his power. He was still aware of who he was, he was still aware of why he was there, he was still aware of of all that was going on around him as much as he could, but he became dependent on the Holy Spirit to remain in connection with the Father. He became dependent on the Holy Spirit as his means of remaining connected to the Father. And in the next chapter of Luke, in fact, in chapter 4, we're going to see some pretty clear evidence of exactly what I'm talking about. There are a couple of examples, which I won't get into today because we're going to get to it next week, where we see Jesus being led into the wilderness by the Holy Spirit. After now, it's come upon him here. We hear about him going and doing something in the power of the Holy Spirit. Well, if Jesus still had his own innate power, he wouldn't be working in the power of the other part of the Godhead if he didn't have to. He is working through the power of the Holy Spirit to accomplish what he needed to do because of his limitation that he took on. So the picture being built here in Luke, especially by Luke, is that through the ministry of the Holy Spirit, Jesus was able to accomplish his supernatural work. But while in human form. And naturally, we see the same experience as well. Here's another parallel for us. Although baptism is a symbolic act, and it's not the moment that you receive the Holy Spirit. It's not supernaturally the time when God gives you the Holy Spirit. That came upon the moment of faith. It is still a picture, in the same way that Christ pictured it, of how the Holy Spirit now has washed us and is now accompanying us and doing work within us. In fact, I would argue that the very prospect of someone voluntarily going in and doing something as strange as baptism... Because from the world's perspective, it's a strange thing. That very act itself is a picture of the fact that you now have a Holy Spirit in you and therefore the desire to do this thing. And just as he was changed, or rather charged, to go forward in ministry by the Holy Spirit at this point, we likewise have been called into some form of ministry to the Lord, to his kingdom, by the Holy Spirit in us. There is no one way to minister. This is one way. You guys may have other ways. But there is only one way appropriate for each of us. What do I mean by that? You can can serve many ways, but you've been gifted and called in some way. And when you divide your talents so far and wide that you never really take time to understand how you're primarily gifted to serve, then you're you're rarely going to be working in the power of that gifting. You're going to be working in your own power in so many other ways. So while we may look for opportunities to serve across the board and should, find what God has gifted and called you to and work primarily in that way for His glory. And you know, we can look to individuals in this group and make example after example, but you know a gift when you see it. It's because it's doing something that you can't do in your own power. The supernatural quality of it is self-evident. That's where we ought to be focused. There's a lot of things I could do here, but I would be really bad at most of them. I'm marginally good at this because of what God has given me the power to do through the Holy Spirit. That's how you know when you're working and you're gifting. And your baptism is sort of your coming out party. It's like you're, you know, the debutante ball. It's the time when you finally decide by faith I'm going to act in obedience in this one small way, but having come up out of that water, okay, where's the work now? What am I to do now for the benefit of the, glo- of, of the body and for the glory of the kingdom? If you don't know what your gifting is, then you need to pray and you need to seek opportunities to get more directly involved in the work of the kingdom because the only way, frankly, that I know that you will remain unclear of your gifting, the only way that's even possible is because you're standing still. A gifting implies becoming a part of a body. That's why Christ talks about the church as his body. And the fact that arms and legs have different roles is a way of showing how different people play different parts. The only way you don't know if you're an arm or a hand or an ear or an eye is because you're too busy standing still, spiritually speaking, and so you haven't had a chance to try doing something, and in the trying, you realize, well, I'm pretty good at this, not so good at those things. I feel real interested in this, not so much interested in those things. Okay, maybe this is where I'm supposed to be. But if you're never working in anything, you'll never find out what your gifting is. So we need to act exercise that effort. And then there's a special kind of calling, one that kind of transcends the normal. If, in addition to being called to serve the body, at one point you feel your service extending beyond some normal level of gifting and and calling, we call that being called into ministry. It's sort of calling someone to a higher purpose, to serve the body on a greater level and devote themselves into that ministry. Devoted meaning all other aspects of their life fall away so that all they're doing is that gifting and that work in the ministry. The scripture calls for men with that calling within the body to be recognized by other men and then to be anointed with oil, prayed over, and dedicated to ministry and sent out with, with our approval, with our support. And as I said in my first two examples, this same thing happened to me. It's, it's same way as the first two examples. Before this church ever formed, in fact, before Matt ever had that fateful day of coming to me and saying, let's, let's start something in a home, I had been in a small group of men who were meeting as sort of an accountability group. We had started it a few weeks earlier, hadn't been going on very long at all. And at one point in one of those meetings, one of the men said, Steve, I feel you've been called into ministry. And this wasn't even the topic. And I think we ought to lay hands on you and anoint you for ministry. And I had no idea even what that looked like. I wasn't even sure what he was talking about. I thought, well, that's interesting. Sure, I'll do that, whatever you want. I kneel down, the other men gather around, and they they prayed over, and they anointed me in ministry, called me into ministry. Two weeks later, Matt comes to my house and says, I'd like you to start a church with us. You know, did I know any of that was happening? No, of course not. Did God? Yes. And what God was doing was ensuring that there would be a calling, anointing, and then the opportunity all in the right sequence without me planning any of it, orchestrating any of it, and not with a huge audience and not with a billboard on 1604. And you see what I'm saying? It doesn't have to take some big formal process for it to be true and real to God. And that's the way God tends to work. It recognizes Him. It gives Him glory in this kind of way that we make public affirmation of what's already taking place within us. Well, finally, there's one last reason as we move on these verses for why Christ was baptized. It's a simple one. To obey God. To obey the Father. And to obey His Word more specifically. In Isaiah 42.1 God says, Behold my servant, whom I uphold, my chosen one, in whom my soul delights. I have put my spirit upon him. He will bring forth justice to the nations. The Father was pleased to put his spirit upon the Son and to empower him for this work of righteousness. And just like Christ said in Matthew, it was necessary for him to be baptized to fulfill all righteousness, to fulfill the word, to do what the Father said. In other words, it was just a matter of obedience. You know what Christ said to us? Exactly the same thing. In other words, he took on this step of being baptized though he was sinless. So that the Father had a public opportunity to anoint him into ministry, tell the world this is my Son, and show him to be obedient to the Word. We've already covered how we ourselves are given opportunity to publicly declare our faith, to publicly declare who we are, and to be anointed into ministry, to be kind of called out from that moment to understand we are now dedicated to a new purpose. But lastly, we are also being called out in obedience because in Matthew 28:19, the very last two verses of that chapter, of that book, rather, he says, Go therefore and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I commanded you, and lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. We call that the Great Commission, which in times is misunderstood to mean go out and make believers, it's not implied that we're going to make anybody a believer. It's implied we're going to disciple those God is turning to faith, and then we're going to teach them to obey everything he commanded, including getting baptized. And when we are baptized, or when we help someone else be baptized, if nothing else, we're obeying the word of God. That alone is enough reason. So I'll end this way as we move on. If you are a believer, but you've never been baptized, and I would argue by immersion, Or if you were just baptized as an infant and had no participation in the event, in your heart or in your mind, it was done to you, then you have a test of obedience waiting you. You have a test of obedience right now. Your Lord has said, you will be baptized for all the reasons I gave and for more beyond even what Christ did it for. So let your heart hear these words, I would pray, and obey, both for the sake of his word and for the blessing that comes from obedience. And in fact, I've been talking to uh, the Spencer family. They have a, I believe you have someone who wants to be baptized. So it's high time we had a baptism. So before the end of this year, uh, we will, hopefully while the water's still warm, we will plan one soon, I hope. And I give you time and I hope you'll take the time to consider being a part of that. We're going to finish out this chapter by reading it. It is all genealogy. I'll say a few words on it, and then we'll finish. It won't take long, but I do want to finish the chapter. I have now the fun of reading all the names. And we've done this before, so you'll, you'll work through this with me. But we will say a few things of significance about what we're going to read. So beginning in chapter 3, verse 23. When he began his ministry, Jesus himself was about 30 years of age, being as was supposed the son of Joseph. The son of Eli. The son of Matat. The son of Levi. The son of Melchi. The son of Janiah. The son of Joseph. The son of Matathias. The son of Amos. The son of Nahum. The son of Hezli, The son of Nagai. The son of Ma'ath. The son of Matathias. The son of Simeon. The son of Josek, The son of Jodah. That's not from Star Wars. The son of Johanan. The son of Resa, the son of Zerubbabel, the son of Sheltiel, the son of Neri, the son of Melchi, the son of Adai, the son of Kosam, the son of El-Madam, the son of Ur, the son of Joshua, the son of Eleazar, the son of Jorim, the son of Mathat, the son of Levi, the son of Simeon, the son of Judah, the son of Joseph, the son of Jonam, the son of Eliakim, the son of Meliah, the son of Menah, the son of Matatha, the son of Nathan, the son of David, the son of Jesse, the son of Obed, the son of Boaz, the son of Salmon, the son of Nashon, the son of Amadab, the son of Admin, the son of Ram, the son of Hezron, and the son of Perez, the son of Judah, the son of Jacob, the son of Isaac, the son of Abraham, the son of Terah, the son of Nahor, the son of Sarug, the son of Ru, the son of Peleg, the son of Heber, the son of Shelah, the son of Canaan, the son of Arphaxad, the son of Shem, the son of Noah, the son of Lamech, the son of Methuselah, the son of Enoch, the son of Jared, the son of Mahalaleel, the son of Canaan, the son of Enosh, the son of Seth, the son of Adam, the son of God. But Jesus' ministry begins, according to Luke, at about the age of 30, as we began that passage. He says about because it's not meant to be exact. The significance here is not in the specific number, but in, is often the case in Scripture, numbers have significance. When they don't necessarily in, uh, have a lot of significance just by themselves, they're often spoken in this way, the way he did here, about 30. So that we don't get too focused on the number, we realize it's not meant to be given spiritual significance. It does have significance, though, from the Bible in the sense that under the law, Priests, for example, did not serve until the age of 30. So in commenting on the fact that he was about 30, Luke is at least making reference to the point that he has reached the legitimate age for ministry, for service. And as we know, Christ being our high priest, according to the book of Hebrews, it was appropriate that he would be at least the age of 30 before he would start to take on his ministry. Why we do that, of course, is for the most part obvious. God recognizes that our maturity is tied to our age. Some mature faster than others, but if you wait long enough, most people get there sooner or later. And By the time we get to about age 30, the argument is that we've reached a level of maturity where we can actually respond appropriately to the calling that God would give us and not dishonor him by how we respond. So, of course, he's waiting until the necessary age as well. The second thing that should have jumped out at us as we began that passage of Scripture was this phrase, supposed. This phrase of him being supposedly the son of... Of Joseph. Now, we already know he wasn't actually the son of Joseph, and that's clear by what Luke is reiterating here. I think the point of it, more or less, is obvious. But what may not be so obvious to you is that in saying that he was the supposed son of Joseph and then moving on beyond that to give the lineage of Joseph, we're actually going to find that when you look at this lineage compared to the one that's given in Matthew, there are significant differences. And some of those differences can be potentially explained by virtue of the fact of Luke saying supposedly the son of Joseph. And I'll explain what I mean here in just a moment. It's natural to compare this verse and its passages to, or this passage and its verses, to Matthew. Because Matthew is the only other place you get a genealogy of Christ in this way. So it's probably worth just a moment to highlight the differences as we close today. First, Matthew starts... First in his gospel with this gene- genealogy. And he begins at the beginning, meaning with the oldest man first, moving toward Christ. So he starts his gospel with the genealogy and he begins the genealogy itself by going forward in time. Luke, on the other hand, we don't get the genealogy until we're already in chapter 3. till the point when Christ actually begins his ministry in earnest. And instead of going forward in time, we go backwards in time. Now, why that—that's not the only difference. But just before we move on, why that difference? Well, it can be explained at least as far as the difference in the purpose of the two gospels. Matthew's purpose was to write to a Jewish audience, which we talked about before, whose pers- principal interest was in Christ as their Messiah and whether he could truly be called the Messiah, whether he could truly stand the test of prophecy regarding the Messiah. Was he legitimately a candidate for Messiah? And Matthew wanted to make clear at the very beginning of his gospel by throwing the genealogy out there first and foremost that Jesus could be traced according to the genealogy given in Scripture for who the Messiah would be from David, from the tribe of Judah so that there is no doubt as to whether or not this man, Jesus, could stand the test of being the Messiah according to Jewish prophecy. He could, Matthew wanted us to know, and he wanted you to know it right up front. And the fact that it was the first thing that Matthew wanted his readers to know is a good way to understand how important genealogy was to a Jew. The fastest and easiest way to discredit someone as Messiah was according to their genealogy. And in fact, you know, the Mormons, for example, pay a lot of attention to genealogies and to trees, family trees. Their reason for doing those tells you a lot about them. And their reason for doing so is they believe you can baptize the dead into salvation, a very unbiblical point of view, a very untrue perspective. So when you know why they collect genealogy data, you have some insight into what they believe. Similarly, the Jews had a very strong concern over genealogy, but for them it was because they knew that would be one of the easiest ways to discredit false messiahs. Their principal reason for keeping a Jewish genealogy so scrupulously was so that they could prove who their Messiah was, because they were all desiring to know who that would be. Matthew knew that, and it was the first thing he dealt with in his book. This is the man who meets the test of genealogy. Luke, on the other hand, his interest was primarily more to show that Jesus was both man and God to a Greek audience, remember? So for him, it was much more important that he trace him backwards to show his connection through men all the way to God. And that's the second difference between these two genealogies. Matthew's genealogy starts with Abraham and moves forward. Luke's goes backward all the way to God. And in that you see a clear difference as well. From a Jew, what matters before Abraham? Nothing. Abraham is the beginning for the Jew. And for the purpose of producing a Messiah, everything started with Abraham and his son. For Luke, though, the issue, issue is that this man was in fact God and I can trace him back to that point. It was a different purpose, a slightly different desire. But the, the third and largest difference between these two is the fact that the names are different in many places. Not many, I should say, but in a few. And that's always posed a lot of problem, particularly for those who want to discredit the Bible. How can we believe the Bible if two genealogies who trace from Jesus backward go through different paths to get, to get there? They both line up at the point of Solomon. But getting to Solomon... Uh, or rather, through uh, yeah, through Solomon. But, but getting to Solomon takes a different path in each case. And there's been a variety of ideas proposed. One of them is that Matthew's principal concern was in showing that Christ was the legitimate heir of the throne, the throne of David. So he traced him through incumbents. In other words, had the throne never been violated, had Christ, had Jews always had a king on the throne, all the way from the time of Solomon, all the way to the point of Christ. Had they never had their temple destroyed, had they never been captured, and had they never been taken into captivity, who would the legitimate heirs have been all the way down to Christ? Who would the king have been by firstborn son to firstborn son to firstborn son? And that being the case, it was traced from Solomon, David, all the way down to Christ. While Luke, on the other hand, was interested in true birth genealogy. So he was showing who actually gave birth to who, as opposed to who was the rightful king all the way down to the last king, to Christ. That's one theory, but it doesn't hold up a lot of water because there's no reason to assume that Matthew wasn't trying to show true genealogy. It's a guess, in other words. Some have proposed that Joseph's lineage to Christ was actually by way of a Leverite marriage, which is a complex discussion, but it basically implies that Joseph was, that there was not actually a literal fathering of son around the time of Eli and Joseph, but rather Eli was the Leverite, sort of like Ruth and Boaz. He was the redeemer for uh, uh, Joseph because Joseph's father would have died and he would have had a a child with Joseph's mother for the sake of producing a lineage to that family. And that's where the, the break occurs again sort of a stretched idea because we have nothing else in Scripture. Probably the most likely explanation and the one we'll end on is Mary's line versus Joseph. Some of you may have heard this. Where, because it's supposedly the son of Joseph, according to Luke, that he's really tracing all the way back through Joseph's line, though not literally is he Joseph's son. But on the other hand, through Matthew, we're tracing Christ's Jewishness. And under the law, Jewishness came from the mother, not from the father. So, the lineage given through Matthew then would not be through Joseph's line, but through Mary's line. Both of whom get back to Solomon, but get there through different brothers of Solomon. One through David, one through Nahum. So that being the case, uh, it's the most likely explanation. Although we have to agree, we have to admit, there is enough mystery here that a full and complete and perfect answer is not available because we have no other genealogy records to compare these records so as we end today consider that the Jews were so scrupulous about keeping their genealogies and they stored them in the temple but in AD 70 God ensured that that record would be ended that there is no longer an opportunity for any Jew to validate any claim of messiahship on the basis of genealogy they have lost that ability and we know why because it's no longer needed it is so that there could never be another man who by coincidence came out of that line and claimed to be the messiah and might gain an ear. So as we look forward to our own baptisms in this church, hopefully in the weeks to come, if you're one of those who might have opportunity, I pray you would consider it. And as we go through the rest of this gospel, beginning next week, we begin Christ's ministry in earnest. I hope you agree it'll be an exciting time as we move through the rest of this book, because in the chapters to come, we're going to see a lot of what our Messiah had to bring in His first coming, so much of which relates not just to our life now, but to the life to come even after he returns. So, Daniel, I'll turn it over to you. Let's go to prayer as we close out our teaching. Father, we give you so much thanks, as always, for your word, but in this morning's time, Father, I particularly thank you for the picture you gave us through your Son of the importance of baptism. How important must it be for us, Father, to obey in that way if your own Son, who knew no sin and who had no need of a regeneration, of a cleansing, was still obedient to you, Father, to do as you commanded him to do and to give us that picture. Father, the least we can do in our obedience, having been saved by his work on the cross, is to comply with his instructions to us to go out into the world to make disciples and to baptize according to what you've taught so that they all may obey, Father, so that we all may be pleasing to you. I thank you, Father, for the time in the Word as well, because for each of us, Lord, the Holy Spirit has worked to convict and to guide, to edify, and to grow. As always, Father, that's why we turn to the Word. And Lord, we give you so much thanks that you've given us a desire to study it in this way. And in the weeks to come, I pray, Father, that you would do a greater work in us still, that what we hear and know ourselves in this small room could be made known to so many more as you give us opportunity. We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.